Good evening. My name is Rod Cookrow, and I am the Vice Chairman of Agenda Alexandria. Welcome to our On the Agenda monthly podcast that previews our monthly program, which will occur this coming Monday, May 28th. Uh, the topic is uh, very, I think, current, given what's been going on in Richmond. It's called the City of Alexandria versus the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, new governing dynamics. Uh, the program is made possible. The Zebra Press and Alex Community, which has provided us this space uh, for podcasting. Reach out to Alex Atrium for more information on how you can also use this space. With me tonight, my guest, my special guest, is C.J. Jordan. C.J. is the former campaign manager for now Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, who is the first African American uh, woman to be elected statewide office in the, in the state of Virginia. Uh, and she shocked a lot of people by upsetting uh, someone who many people thought was going to take take the race. Um, she is part of a triumvirate of Republican leaders that now lead the Commonwealth. At the top, of course, is uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin. And then we have Lieutenant Governor Sears and our Attorney General, whose name I always have trouble pronouncing. Jason Moreras. Jason Moreras. Uh, this is the first time uh, in my memory, in my adult life, when the Republicans have held all three top seats and uh, positions in the state government. Um, and so it's really it was quite remarkable what happened. And we'll talk about that uh, in preparation for sort of setting the tone for our, our discussion next Monday. First of all, CJ, thank you for coming. I appreciate your being here. It's nice to meet you. Well, first, thank you for having me, and I'm excited to join you this evening. So t tell the our audience a little bit about your background. I understand you're a Virginia native. Um, sort of where did you grow up in, in the Commonwealth, and, and where do you live now? Well, I grew up in Amherst County. Um, long which, is, which is down in the southwest? Well, south central. South central, okay. Yes, on the other side of um, Nelson County. Um, my family uh, was there for almost 100-plus years. So we founded a town called Jordantown. And my grandmother on my father's side recently died last year. She turned 104, um, proprietor of Witcher's Cafe and Pie Shop, and come from a lot of hardworking families, you know, Jordan Taxicab. And so, you know, just great entrepreneurs and hardworking family. And so what brought you to the, the D.C. area and how did you get involved in politics? Well, I've been in politics for, oh my gosh, since I was 26, started out in Ohio and had a great run doing great things, came to D.C. with the Bush administration, understanding different things, but not as a member of his administration, but as a party activist. Okay. Um, I have to ask you, because you, yes. you're, you're, the, you're in the vanguard of sort of a new generation of African-American Republicans. Uh, there haven't been a lot of those sort of around, around the block lately in Virginia, not to mention just nationally. Uh, and yet, Obviously, the candidate you worked for, Winston Sears, who was a Marine veteran, I believe, uh, yes. and had a wonderful track record in her own right as a, as a candidate. And now there's you, and there are, there are others, too, in the state who are sort of separating themselves uh, from the traditional adherence to Democratic Party dogma. And I'd like to ask a little bit about how, how that come to be for you. Why do you make those kind of choices? I know that you were on the Trump transition team, and you, as you just said, you worked for, for President Bush. So... What makes you a Republican? Well, my moral values make me a Republican. I am pro-life. Um, I believe in quality education, and there's choice in that. Um, and I believe in entrepreneurship. And when you look at the history of the Republican Party, going back to Booker T. Washington, who was born a slave here in Virginia, um, we've always believed in education. So we were founders of 
all of our historical black colleges and universities. Um, and we believed in entrepreneurship, black-owned business. And that's the history of the Republican Party. Well, and there are quite a few HBCUs in Virginia. Absolutely. We have Norfolk State, Hampton University, Virginia State, Virginia Union. We have Lynchburg University down in Lynchburg. And we also used to have St. Paul's College, where I attended in Lawrenceville, Virginia, which they now have a school back up and running. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so, as I already mentioned, you were on the Trump transition team. You worked in the Commerce Department for Secretary Wilbur Ross for, yes. for a while. Um, what did you actually do there? My main function was special assistant to the secretary, but being a voice and an advocate for the Trump administration with minority-owned businesses. Um, one of my great hallmarks when I left there was the fact that I worked with the administration to get established a billion-dollar fund um, so that could move forward to help black minority and women-owned businesses that are MBEs across the nation. I, I noticed from your resume that you you've done an awful lot of work throughout your career politically, mm -hmm. working in particular to try to influence the RNC, the Republican National Committee, and the other candidates you've worked for to sort of pay more attention to the needs of the African-American mm -hmm. community, which, of course, I mean, we sh you showed it in the election with, with Lieutenant Governor Sears, I, and we'll get to this, I'll ask you a second question about this. She took a lot of votes away from the Democratic Party because of not just her race, but her positions on, as you might say, moral issues. But in terms of being an advocate for things like um, set-asides and helping HBCUs and small businesses, that's all very commendable, something I certainly would support. But traditionally, the Republican Party, at least nationally, I'm not sure about statewide, they tend to not to support those kind of things. In other words, they would fight efforts by the Democrats in Congress to uh, do things that specifically helped one race or one particular group of people over another. So do you feel comfortable in sort of advocating for what you do within the Republican Party? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the things is oftentimes many people don't know our history. One of my mentors, the legendary Bob Brown, served as special assistant to um, President Nixon. And it was he who was very instrumental during the Nixon administration who established EEO, affirmative action, um, set aside. That would be the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission? Mission? Absolutely. Okay. And when we talk about, you know, he and I, we share and we, we talk about great things, but when we look at all the advantages that we have as black-owned businesses, particularly the agency at the Department of Commerce, which celebrated its 50-year anniversary under President Trump, it was Bob Brown under President Nixon who established that. When we talk and about what was that agency called? Back then, it was Minority Business Enterprise, but okay. now it's a Minority Business Development Agency. And the thing is, we want to develop black-owned businesses. When we talk about the Navy shipyard, it was Bob Brown who held up the made first defense contract over, I think it was a billion-dollar contract at that time, until we got black-owned businesses involved in defense contracting. So when we look at SBA, Bob Brown had a role in it under President Nixon. When that we would think be the Small Business Administration. administration. Right. Absolutely. So it is in our nature, it is in our DNA to do those things. Now, are there, we're Big Ten. Are there some people who don't think affirmative action should go forward? But are there many Republicans who believe in goals, in setting goals, and reaching those goals? And one of those things was what President Trump did. Um, our historical black colleges and universities lost funding under. Obama and Biden administration, but it was President Trump who came in and said, look, they should not be coming annually begging, let's set 
a four year out timeline in the appropriations bill so that they don't have to make it properly planned. And he set a goal of attaining an increase of 5% of contracting opportunities with our HBCUs. When we now think about Governor Youngkin, it was something that he campaigned on. It is in his budget, the fully funding of Virginia's historical black colleges and universities. And that funding for them is critical. That funding is needed. And now he has just called this, you know, the General Assembly back into special session on April the 4th. So I'm looking forward to those things that most people traditionally don't think that we do, but we actually do do. So did the, did the legislature, which of course is split between the Democratic narrow majority, Democratic Senate, and the uh, House of Delegates, which is also pretty narrowly mm-hmm. led by Republicans, in the budget, did they give the governor the money he wanted for the historically black colleges? I think that was one of the things that was, you know, what I consider a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation. Um, until the budget is passed, that funding is not there. But again, they're coming back on April 4th to discuss, you know, the budget bill and things going forward. But that's the first step in understanding um, the commitment that this governor, this administration, um, Speaker Todd Gilbert, they have for diverse communities. It's also in there about lab schools, which there's bipartisan support on that. Now, they might differ in the funding of it, but they've reached bipartisan agreement on the lab schools that Governor Youngkin wants to put forward for quality education. And the lab schools are some, they're akin to sort of charter schools where you have a special focus and special Mm -hmm. education management by more or less the private sector, but getting some degree of state funding. Is that correct? Well, a combination thereof, but it's also in partnership with our community colleges system. So. I want to get back to your associate with, with Lieutenant Governor Whitsam Sears, who, to me, just had a remarkable run at that at that office. Um, and, I mean, a lot of people I've talked to are political observers in Virginia, some of whom are smarter than others, and some who may, maybe were just dead wrong about her prospects. I mean, clearly, she must have taken a, a significant slice of the state's African-American vote to sort of beat this, what would look like a, a Democratic juggernaut that turned out not to be. How did how did you as campaign manager and she accomplish that? Well, the first thing it was, we knew that we needed to have double-digit African-American support to, to get it to the finish line. We focused on grassroots opportunities. Um, we locked down the billboards across the state so you could go through Hampton Tunnel and you would see Winsome Sears on the billboards going into that tunnel, Central Virginia and in Richmond. So um, just in the Hampton Roads area, we had 26 billboards. We had 15 in Richmond area, and we had six in Central Virginia, and then we had some Southwest Virginia, um, courtesy of other grassroots activists. But those were key and important things, and we just ran a very stiff, um, low-budget um, campaign, and we were able to get 16% African-American vote, 38% Asian, and 36% Hispanic. And so um, that's how we did it. Wow. Um, I mean, just based on my knowledge of previous races in, in Virginia, Democrats rarely lose that sizable portion of the minority community. Do you think that's something that can continue? Obviously, it's a state where the governor, it's rare, only can serve one term. Is she, does she have the uh, sort of character and ambition to maybe want to take a run at governor, you think, in, a, in three or four years? Well, I don't know what that ambition is. I, what I do know, historically on the Republican side, the attorney general is the next person in line to run. Um, but I have no idea. We also have um, Senate seats up in that year as well. So I'm going to let those who are 
much smarter than I work that out and manage that out. I'm focused on 2022. So you're thinking she might challenge one of our Democratic Senate incumbents? You never know. You never know. You never know. You never know. Well, let, let's focus more now on, on the topic of our Monday program, which is the city mm-hmm. of Alexandria versus the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, the, one reason we wanted to do this program as Agenda Alexandria, where we te- like to look at issues from both sides without, without taking a position, is that in late December, right before Christmas, I think our mayor, Justin Wilson, sent a letter to Governor Youngkin, a rather yes. lengthy letter. Um, and, and there's no denying that in most people's views, uh, Alexandria is, is one of the more liberal jurisdictions in the state of Virginia, if not the most liberal. In fact, for many years, the uh, <laughs> they were referred to in, in Richmond by the Republican legislature mm-hmm. as the People's Republic of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly, Mayor Wilson falls on the, the left side of that spectrum mm-hmm. of Democrats. Um, and in the letter, he, he sort of, he reached out you know, you have to take him sincerely at his effort to ask for a way to find a partnership with the administration on certain topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I communicated with, with the mayor today. He did get a response back from the governor, but he said it wasn't substantive. And I didn't expect it really to be since he sent the letter before the governor was actually sworn in, right? Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, there was a response. Maybe there will be more dialogue. But some of the things that he asked for, I'd like to get your opinion on. Since you're a Virginian, you're involved in Virginia politics. Um, he had, I think, five or six issues. One was um, he wanted to hold electric utilities accountable, and that means for Alexandria and most of the state dominion, mm-hmm. which is a huge investor-owned utility. Um, the city politicians and a lot of citizens got really upset last year when during a major local event, Art on the Avenue in Delray, my, na- my neighborhood, the power went out. Mm-hmm. Transformers blew. Um, some people ascribe that to the fact that there's been so much overdevelopment that the transformers have not kept up in terms of being able to handle the electric load mm-hmm. the demand, and so um, that happened. Um, and in his letter, and in some news articles about his letter, it was noted that Governor Yunkin, during his campaign, did not have a lot of kind words for Dominion as well. He also thought that they needed to be uh, sort of brought more to heel under the state government. Um, and I don't know where that stands today. I don't because, because typically Dominion has been known um, to be perennially the largest single donor to politicians in the state of Virginia, federal level, state level, local level. I mean, they that mm-hmm. they have that influence. Um, what do you think of the idea of asking the governor to help the city of Alexandria sort of make Dominion sort of have to pay? And then what the gov- what the mayor suggested is that the governor support lowering Dominion uh, rate of return on their on their on their uh, on their investment. That's it. First, let's get back to the letter. Okay. The letter was sent in December, as you stated. Right. Um, and at that particular time, the governor was not sworn in. It was right. the governor elect, and based on a form letter being received. So the question I have, as an opinionated political strategist. Why would the mayor send a letter in December if he really wanted to be sincere and establish a relationship with the incoming governor? Because it didn't get to the transition team. He probably just went through a lot of different places. And he did not ask for a meeting with the governor-elect during the transition. True, we well, did. Let me ask you a question. Did, 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 did other elected officials in the state who represent counties or cities ask for meetings with the governor? I think if you are a mayor... Um, 
I'm sure there have been plenty mayors because it is standard operating procedure and protocol that, you know, if you want to have a meeting during transition, you write, you reach out um, to establish those meetings. Um, and if the mayor sent the letter, that means he did not reach out to his Republican friends or friends within Agenda Alexandra to say, hey, how can I get this meeting? Well, we, we are not partisan. No, but he, I'm just saying. He couldn't but, reach out to us. Right, but I'm saying they're friends, the <clears throat> people he probably know in the organization that can say, hey, how can you help me get this meeting with the governor-elect to discuss the issues and concerns that I have for my people here? Mm. Um, and that's the first thing that you do. So when I look at somebody sending a letter and then making a very public statement about the letter, then I have to question, was it a sincere effort? Was it politics behind it versus being sincere as a mayor advocating on behalf of the constituents and voters of this great city? Well, I mean, I, 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 have, I have to assume, I've, I've known the mayor for a long time, that, he, that it was a sincere effort on his part. It's the way he communicated to the governor. Um, at the same time, your suggestion that he reach out to Republicans locally there are no Republicans locally in Alexandria. I mean, every single every single office has been for many, many years held by Democrats. And um, I mean, it used to be that, I mean, just to go back in history for our viewers, I mean, I mean, 20 years ago, you had prominent Republicans who were state delegates, who were state senators, who were members of city council. Um, they've either moved on or they've, or they've passed passed away. So he doesn't really seem to have that option. But let me, let me go on to some other, other aspects of this letter that he wrote, because this is interesting. Um, Governor Yunkin, maybe his greatest issue that he ran on uh, was was education, in particular, giving parents more control. He had advertising on that that took off after um, his opponent, former Governor Terry McAuliffe, for McAuliffe saying parents shouldn't have a, a role in their children's education. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the worst political blunders of the uh, 21st century, especially for an, for an experienced politician. But what the mayor's asking the governor for is more funding for education. Uh, and he points out the fact that it's a shared burden between localities in the state, mm -hmm. and that um, we have a growing population of children because we have so much development that brings in more families, uh, and that he's trying to appeal to the governor's support for education, um, without mentioning, by the way, parental involvement or, per or listening more to parents. Uh, he's just saying we need to recognize the cost of living here is much higher. We need more money for education. Um, do you think he made a mistake and not sort of appealing to the governor's political promise that education, I'm going to work on education, I'm going to fund education, but I'm going to do it uh, by tying funding perhaps to more parental involvement uh, and more parental uh, uh, attention to local school, from local school boards. Here, I mean, again, it goes back to establishing relationships. Politics is a relationship business. And if you don't have the relationships, then you make it a transactional uh, relationship. And again, the mayor needs to have a diff not a transactional relationship, but he needs to have a familiar relationship. And when you look at Republicans in this area, you know, the governor got 24% of the vote out of this particular county. And right down the road is um, Pat Harity. And so the question becomes, has the mayor reached out to Pat and said, Pat, you know, I don't know the governor real well. 
I know folks that know you. Let's have a cup of coffee. Here are my issues and concerns. Help me establish a relationship with this current administration so that I can advocate on the behalf of my citizens and the voters, whether it's transportation, because the governor is from Northern Virginia. Um, he has been on 95. He has been on 495. He's been on 81. But when you look at he was just recently here for groundbreaking on 495 for job creation and expansion of 495. I wonder if you got caught up in the people's convoy going around the beltway. <laughs> I don't know, but um, he's been in bumper-to-bumper traffic, and I'm sure you and I have. So those are commonalities of things of, hey, let's sit down and talk, and then let's figure out how we can move together in a bipartisan effort to benefit those things in Northern Virginia that we can agree on. Because as Ronald Reagan said, 80% of things that we're going to agree upon, there are 20% of things that we're not going to agree on. But of that 20%, how can we find some commonality? Well, let's talk about that in terms of taxes, because that's the next topic the mayor brought up. And of course, as you know, um, Governor Youngkin <clears throat> ran, after education, he ran on tax reform. Several things. One is to um, eliminate the grocery tax because mm-hmm. it's regressive. Before, so it affects people of lower incomes more than people of higher incomes. And I think the legislature has reached some kind of accommodation where they're going to um, eliminate the state portion of that tax, but localities like Alexander still impose a grocery tax. Um, he had a proposal, which I don't think has gotten approved yet, which is a double the standard deduction for, for taxpayers in Virginia. And another one, which I think has gotten the assent of the Democrats in the legislature, is to provide a one-time rebate um, of $300 for individuals and $600 for couples. Uh, and in the, in the mayor's letter, he didn't sort of speak to those proposals that he campaigned on, but instead he asked for the governor to support um, what he called limitations on cities and counties and towns with regard to revenue authority. Right now he points out rightfully that the city raises taxes two ways, personal property tax on cars and boats, uh, and uh, property tax on mm-hmm people who own houses and commercial property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about <clears throat> diversifying the sources of revenue without specifically saying what everybody knows I think he wants, which is some sort of form of an income tax possibly or something else that would allow more revenue to be collected um, from, from citizens. Um, and I'm curious about your feelings about that. Uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned in his letter, and I haven't heard anything about from Governor Yunkin, which is being done in other states right now because of high gasoline prices. Some states are eliminating the gas tax uh, temporarily for a period of months, or they're cutting it in half. The problem is that gas tax money in Virginia goes to fund public transit. Um, so if you, if you eliminate the gas tax for a while, there's less money for public transit, which is another of the mayor's topics in this letter. Um, so what if you had to have a crystal ball about what's going to happen with taxation and sort of what the mayor's talking about, what would your reaction to that be? Well, I think, first of all, when you look at um, the gas tax, uh, one of the things that the governor has called for as bipartisanship of governors across the country is temporarily suspending the gas tax. The federal gas tax. The fed, you know, the gas tax in each state. But there's also a state the gas, gas tax. tax. Yeah, okay. and they're talking, they can't suspend the federal gas tax. Right. They don't have the authority, but state gas tax, they do. And so that piece, they are advocating, you know, short-term suspension. And Governor Yonkin has said for three months. Is that 
appropriate in this day and time when you're looking at gas here in Alexandria and Arlington hovering right about five dollars? Um, yes, because we're seeing even during a campaign season the rise before and it is not attributed to Ukraine. You have seen the steady increase of groceries and gasoline even back during the summer. And a lot of that increase came from the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. You also now have the governor in Michigan talking about canceling the I, I'm, Wait, I'm going to challenge you on that because I happen to, in my day job to be an energy reporter. The Keystone Pipeline was going to bring heavy, heavy tar sands from Canada in a pipeline all the way to New Orleans to get shipped overseas. None of the Keystone oil, heavy tar sands oil was going to be refined in New Orleans or Houston for use by Americans. Well, I disagree because based That's on... That's a fact. Well, and my fact, based on my knowledge, is the fact that the black trade unions in the great state of Texas who were working on that pipeline um, lost their jobs. And those people in South Dakota lost their jobs because... Yeah, they did. They did. But it wasn't because but, the gasoline was coming to America. No. So based on the fact that they were working on it and that sand oil coming down from Canada and the fact that they were looking to have it refined. But again, we have a difference of opinion here on this evening. But a lot of people lost their jobs. And once that ended, gas prices basically ticked up. Now, we can disagree on if there's a correlation, but on my side of the aisle, there is a correlation. But let's get back to what we were talking about. Taxes. The taxes on our gasoline. It's a great opportunity for the mayor to reach out to his Democratic colleagues and say, you know what, my people in my city are struggling because when you know, Alexandria has a diverse group of citizens. You have some upper income, and you have some lower income, and you have middle income. That's what most people like about this particular city of, you know. You Except know, more and more, there are fewer in the middle. Yeah, it's more and more few in the middle. So when you're looking at those who are struggling to put food on the table because of the rise of oil and gasoline, those right now, the heating bills, the electric bills, all of those things are going up. So a short-term suspension um, is needed and warranted. And I think... It can be a bipartisan effort. Again, we have Democratic governors who are coming together. And do you think that will happen in, in, after they reconvene April 4th, that that will be one of the things they compromise on? I think it's one of the things because the governor has one of the things he has said. We need to do this suspension for three months for all Virginians' hardworking families. Okay. Um, we only have – I'm getting a signal here from about four minutes left. But I want to ask you about one other thing in the, in the mayor's letter. Um, and that has to do with what he says he calls preserving local authority. Um, as, as you know, but a lot of our viewers may not know, the city, the state is governed by something called the Dillon Rule, D-I-L-L-O-N. Mm -hmm. Look it up on Google. Um, one of only three or four states governed by this law uh, this, or this procedure practice that says essentially all power rests with the state and that localities, cities, and counties cannot do much of anything without going to the state and getting permission. Um, and, the gov and, and the mayor asks for, um, he says, an overemphasis on statewide uniformity often hampers the ability for localities like Alexandria to respond nimbly or to innovate in response to emergent challenges unique to our community. That's a lot of words since he's saying we want to do more of our own thing. Mm -hmm. Now, the question I have for you, and I've had before for going back decades for the Republicans, is that, once again, if you look at Congress and nationally, the Republican Party nationally doesn't like Congress to be sort of over-legislating and taking away the rights of states to do things. Uh, we've seen it recently on things like abortion, where states should have their own, states should have their own right to set abortion mm -hmm. laws. It shouldn't be a federal thing. Um, 
so in this case, essentially what you have with the Dillon rule is a, a practice in the state that takes away power from localities, which seems to fly in the face of traditional Republican dogma about making decisions uh, available to the lowest level of government where people live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how Governor Young's going to respond to that because I don't think he's ever had an opinion that I've read about on the Dillon rule mm-hmm. and reform of that rule. Um, is that just sort of a pipe dream for Mayor Wilson, or is it something you think they could work together on? Well, uh, on this, I can't speak for the governor, but from a a registered voter, the rule, as my grandfather said, if, if it ain't broke, you know, don't, don't try to fix it. it. Don't fix it. And so right now, I don't see where the rule is broke. And what that rule to me, after, you know, looking at it, it's about a centralized decision-making process so that they don't want to have, you know, 50 different jurisdictional rulings on things. So, you know, when we want to raise taxes and it's on personal property taxes, does it make sense to go to the legislature and say, hey, you know what? Um, we want to raise, because somebody might say we want to raise it 25%. Well, the city the city can do that with the personal property taxes, but the thing is what they can't do. No, but I'm just But using what you can do in Maryland, and like in yeah. Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a county in Maryland could say we want to impose a, uh, an income tax, and right. they can do it. And the right. state can say no. But in, in Virginia, the state says you can't do that unless we give you permission. And I think that's, right now, I think that's fine. Because, again, it's a good check and balance. And it's about, you know, hey, let me go down there and see if that makes sense. It goes back to when we look at college tuition, and people are up in arms that, hey, you can go, what, VCU just asked for increase on college tuition. And parents are sitting saying, wait a minute, didn't you just do that last year or who who did that? So it's great that there is a check and balance system that the legislature can say, hey, you know what, go back and we tweak this and then come back. Or no, this is not the right time for this. And I think that's a great thing to do. Um, I just have a hard time personally believing that there are a lot of Republican local officials, not in the legislature, but people who are governing the red counties in southwest Virginia who would like more authority to say, we want to run our own lives the way we want to run it, without having to run to Richmond, where the legislature meets for six weeks a year and have to make a case, you know, kind of with your hat in hand, saying, please let us do this. I mean, I, I just have a hard time believing that that's, um, in the 21st century, the way the Republican Party wants to sort of operate. Well, I don't think it's a Republican Party issue. I think it's the fact that... I agree, well, I agree with you on that. Because let's face it, the Democrats had control for the last several years in Virginia, right? All levels of government. They didn't repeal the Dillon Rule. Right. That is absolutely correct. And again, one of the reasons why they probably didn't repeal it is because of the simple fact of the ability to go to Richmond and Richmond to have a check and balance on local municipalities on the things that they do and what they ask for when it comes to taxes. And so I think that's a a fair assessment. Okay. Um, We are at the end of this very, very quick discussion. I've enjoyed every minute. I hope you have too. Um, I want to remind our our audience that you can register for our upcoming program on Monday, March 28th at 7 a.m., 7 p.m. at agendaalexandria.org. Thank you again to Alex Community and to the Zebra Press. Make sure to follow the Zebra Press on Facebook or visit thezebra.org or just pick up a copy of the paper. It's all over town. Our program will be at the uh, George Washington Masonic Memorial next Monday, 
March 28th, reception at 6.30, program at 7. Um, and we will have a small social reception uh, before the program. Uh, so I hope you can join us in person. If not, you can follow us online. Anyway, I'm Rod Cookrow. Thank you, CJ Jordan, for a wonderful discussion. Appreciate your being here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.